I have found in speaking that it's very helpful for people to orient towards the passage I'm speaking on, to listen to it carefully and pay attention to it, because much that otherwise would need to be explained doesn't have to be. But I once had a professor uh, who was talking about the fact that it says in 1 Timothy, pay attention to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and teaching. And he pointed out that it's commanded in the Bible to read the scripture publicly, and that if you ever had to choose, he said, between reading the Bible and preaching, you should always choose reading the Bible because it's inspired and you're not. (laughs) He was an Episcopalian, but, you know, I thought that's pretty good what he said. Beginning in verse 20, please listen carefully. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit whom you give to those who trust in the Lord Jesus. He is for us the ever-resident source of light. He is the one who is able to teach us and drive home into our hearts those things that we hear and We pray this morning that he would do that work. We know that it is his purpose to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that, in fact, in our hearts and in our lives, he would do that very work today as he brings home the truth of your word and unites it in our hearts. We pray that you would give us attentive hearts. And we ask that in whatever way we resist listening to you and moving in your way. We pray that you would work in such a way as to melt down our resistance and to break our stubbornness and to bring us into a place where we most willingly follow you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. When my wife and I were a young married couple living in Dallas, Texas, we went to a small church and my wife had an experience that she has never forgotten there was a a girl getting married in the church, a young woman, and so there was a shower, as is customary for her, and a a number of women, mostly younger women, uh, and a few older women were at this shower. And as I understand goes on at showers, a question was asked that the group was sharing. And the question was, if you were getting married today, what would you do differently? And obviously it was meant to give some perspective to this new bride on what she was going into And as different things were shared, and as they went around the group, Laura realized it was going to get to a woman whom just a couple of months before, her husband of many years had left her for his secretary. And eventually it got around to her, and Laura never told me what the woman said, but what she told me was, everybody listened. Because the woman was speaking out of a depth of pain and experience that other people in the room had not experienced. And I want to suggest that this morning we're losing that in modern culture. We're losing the influence and the impact 
of older people who have often experienced things, both good and bad in life, that they are not passing on in ways that they did before. The distance between the generations seems to be wider than it ever has before. I got on the internet this week and did a little spade work trying to figure out about influence of the older generation and how people are thinking about them. And one of the things I found out is that scholarly studies don't seem to indicate that people actually think less of older people than they used to. I, I know a lot of times the older generation thinks that they're not as respected and there isn't as much of a respect for authority, and I'm sure in many ways that's true. However, that, that doesn't seem to be borne out in that previous generations also had a lack of respect for authority, as far as we can tell. However, I think there are some things that have gone on that have separated them generations. For example, we now regularly use these titles to put people in categories. You're either a baby boomer, or you're a Gen Xer, or you're a millennial. And it, it, while there's some value to that concept, I'm sure, people often don't realize that those are completely arbitrary in some sense. Like, everyone agrees on only one thing, and that is that this whole idea started in 1945. The men, like my father and my wife's father, came home from the war, and they began to have families. And there was quite a population boom at that point. That's why they got the title, we got the title, baby boomers. But beyond that 1945 point, there's nothing that anyone agrees upon as to how long the baby boomers lasted. Did it end in 1962 or 63 or 69? How long the Gen Xers have been around, who they are and the millennials? It's kind of arbitrary as to how these dates are assigned, because after all, there's nothing objective that tells you that there are these categories or any other categories. Children are born at a rather regular rate as you go through life, and that hasn't changed, though the rate might increase or decrease at various points. But these are viewed almost like distinct cultures, subcultures. The baby boomers have a set of values and ideas and needs that aren't related to what followed after them in terms of values and convictions and ideas about what's important. And so it's like every generation, as they're pictured there, lives in a bubble. And that bubble is now, we might secondarily point out, recognized by advertisers. And advertisers very carefully fine-tune their advertising to these different generations. 50 years ago, there were almost no advertisements aimed at children or teenagers. The only ones I can remember are um, cereal, because they knew everybody went to the store, and the little kid said, I want that cereal. But now, younger people are viewed as a distinct category within themselves, of which the majority of advertising dollars goes. Older people, the baby boom generation, also receive certain attention, and it mostly has to do with hemorrhoid cream and various things like that that older people seem to need. Technology also, you can add into that, it's produced a sense of distance between the generations that many of us feel. You either existed before the computer or you came about after the computer. Now, many of those who are older have also adapted to the computer culture, but they will never adapt, we will never adapt in the way that people who grew up not knowing there was another way to think will adapt. 
that also has created a sense of distance. But whatever it is, however you look at it, there is sort of a distance between the generations that those th things are shared. They're not shared with the same power as it seems they were in the past. Now, this morning we're finishing a series. It's been called Family Ties, and we haven't focused so much on family as in the nuclear family, father and mother and so forth, as we focused on the church as a family. That's a major concept that the Bible uses. We are pictured in family terms so that we're not just an organization, that, uh, which we are different workers in the organization. We're not um, some kind of volunteer group in which the groups are within the volunteer organization have different needs. We are considered, according to Scripture, as being the family of God, the household of God, in which we experience together the different things that a family is meant to experience. That invites us to think of our role in the church based on where we are at in terms of our stage of development, both physically and spiritually. And that's why I wanted to use this passage. Here's a passage in which the father and mother speak to the child and give him guidance and direction. Now, I need to note something about this passage before we look at it carefully because I don't want to misuse it. One thing you need to note is that where I ended at verse 23, on the screen it showed a period. However, there is not a period in your Bible. There's a comma, because everything that I read is simply the introduction to the point of the passage, and the point of the passage comes in verse 24. The father and mother having instructed the child, the reason they are for instructing them is given. It says, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Footnote, my Bible says the word adulteress means foreign woman. And that's important for this reason. Proverbs 1 through 9 is different from the rest of Proverbs. It's not just a series of uh, pithy sayings that are meant to be something you can grab onto and use as a, a way to live wisely in this world. It's sort of uh, more or less an extended contrast between two women that are pictured. One is what interpreters call lady wisdom. Wisdom, throughout chapters 1 through 9, is pictured as a woman, a woman who invites you to come and to receive of her gifts. And she has contrasted lady wisdom with the foreign woman, and the foreign woman is not a woman of a different uh, country than you came from. Foreign woman is a word that means an adulteress. And these two are held up as the example of the two ways you can live in life. Now, you could think of it on the surface, and that would not be a bad thing to do. In fact, it is not meant to uh, be something mystical. Uh, it, it is a picture of the fact that in life you make choices. You either choose the wise woman or you choose someone who is not the wise woman. You either choose one way of living which will move you in the right direction or you choose another way of living. And that comes to the fore in the eyes of many, many people when we make that choice regarding our life partner and so it's, a, it's something that is very true. I used to say to my boys, hope this doesn't offend anyone, but I would say as you go out into the world, you're going to meet two kinds of women. You're going to meet women that you'd like to take home and meet your mother, and you're going to meet women that you'd just like to take home. And your goal in life is to find the first and avoid the second. Well, that is the message of Proverbs, as crassly as it is put. It is the message of Proverbs. It's a reflection on two ways. But I also want you to know this. The whole part, uh, first nine chapters that give this extended contrast that weaves in and out of it between lady wisdom and the adulteress is also meant to picture the two ways of life that you can take. It's not just sexual morality. 
It has to do with the fact that the wise woman represents God's way of life. She represents not only the good wife, the faithful companion, but she's God's word in action when you read through the passages. She's God's commandments applied to life. She's right choices. She's the long view of life. She's working hard and saving money and all of those things that are the right way to move. And on the other hand, the foreign woman represents the shortcut to pleasure that life offers us on every level. This is what all wisdom literature is about in the Bible. It was an ancient tradition rooted back into the patriarchs that made its way up until it became a formal tradition found in Proverbs in the book of Job and parts of the Psalms. This idea that there's a contrast between the right way to live and the wrong way to live. And what happens in this passage is the father and mother speak to their son, and they're telling him there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. And I don't want to focus on the right and the wrong way this morning. I want to focus on the father and mother speaking to their son. I realize that's not the point of the whole passage, but it is the point of the first few verses. The father and mother speak to their child, and there's two simple things we're meant to take from it. The first is found in the first two verses. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. And the idea that's given to us is that we must pay attention to those who are ahead of us on life's journey in terms of their experiences and their time. We are called to do that as we move through life. We are called to respect our parents, to respect those who are older, and that basic idea comes from the Bible that we must pay attention to them. Now, what I want you to note, though, is that it uses words that refer in the Old Testament to what is called the law. These phrases, commandment, teaching, or especially bind them on your height, tie them around your neck, these come directly out of the first few books of the Bible, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 4. The central message to Judaism, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema, which is recited every day. In that passage, it goes on and it says that you are to instruct your children. You are to teach them to bind these things on their heart and tie them around their neck like a placard that everyone would see. And it's using these on purpose because it's not just talking about any father or mother giving instruction to their children. All fathers and mothers all over the world do that. The point of the passage is the godly father and mother passing on God's word, teaching the child, this is what God wants out of you. This is your duty towards God as it's revealed in his word. And uh, we are meant to listen to those things. Now, understand, older people are not an infallible guide in life. I don't want anyone to pick up this sort of romantic notion that every gray-haired person is necessarily a rich compendium of wisdom because they're not. Some of them are fools. But in the passage, it's evident that the father and mother, as I was saying, represent God's authority. They represent those who have sought to live for God and walk with God. And though they've done that in a fallible way, they've erred, and they have not always experienced all the good things they longed for. There are people who have tried to do that. And what we are meant to look for in life is those people who have tried to live by God's word. And we're meant to draw upon the resource in order to learn how to live. I was not raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a good home. My parents were good, faithful people. They were honest. They worked hard. I learned a lot of good things. But 
My parents had no place for God in their lives. We never read the Bible at home or talked about it or anything like that. If I was told to do right things, it had nothing to do with the soul. It had nothing to do with the relationship with God. What happened was, I was 19, I came to faith in Christ, and it's like a whole world opened up to me that I had never glimpsed before. That there were people who actually met, and a person up front opened the Bible and taught out of the Bible. I'd never seen that. Oh, I'd been to church, and I'd heard people do little five or ten minute homilies about being kind to auntie and helping people across the street and that kind of thing. But I, I'd never really heard someone teach the Bible. And to me, it was like, I had never faced that before. Well, understand, when I got married a couple of years later, and, and I set out into married life and having a family, I had no guide in my background, nothing that would have shown me how a person does that who's in love with Jesus and wants to follow him, wants to listen to his word. And the church became the place where I learned that. And I didn't learn it because people taught classes that you know, said, we'll give you a certificate at the end that makes you a real Christian husband or anything like that. I did it just by fellowshipping the church. And what I found over a period of time is that I heard older people share things in various settings. They might have been social, out at dinner somewhere. They might have been in a Bible study or whatever it was. And as they shared those things, I began to draw in the things that I had never known that I needed to know in order to seek to have a distinctively Christian home. And that's what we're meant to do. We're meant to listen to those who are ahead of us on life's journey. Now, uh, this we do in our church in part by having small groups. And some churches have groups that are age-divided, like all the 20-somethings are in this group and you know, people in their 30s and so forth, or, or various life stages of having young children or teenage children or whatever. And I have no problem with that, although I'd have to say, having led small groups for 40 years since I uh, came to faith in Christ, it's the only thing I've done consistently throughout my Christian life uh, in terms of ministry. Having done that, I, I've learned a lot about groups, and the fact is every choice you make to organize a group in a certain way cuts out other choices. And at some point, you have to make choices and one of the choices we've made is that we don't age divide our groups. Now, I do want to explain sometimes we start groups that are focused on a specific need, and by virtue of doing that, you tend to age divide them. For example, as people's child care needs have increased through the last generation, we've started more groups in which people with younger children meet together because they can get babysitting all in one place for their children. And we found that to be helpful at times. Well, when you make a choice like that, you're going to gather mostly younger people. But what we haven't done is we haven't said that group is only open to younger people. We've never done that with our groups. Because we would like to have a wider age range of people in groups. And a lot of times, our general community groups that start have uh, a range of ages from people that have no children at home any longer. They've raised their children and those who are starting out. And we find that to be very helpful. We need to pay attention to those who are ahead of us on life's journey, especially spiritually. But the second thing it says in the passage, beginning in verse 22, is simply that we should do that because God uses them to help guide and protect us as we make our way through life. That's how God has designed the world. So it says these commandments, this teaching that's passed on, when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. 
In other words, just like I described, God uses these things to shape us in ways that life has not prepared us up to that point in order to seek to live for God and to honor him. Now, again, I want you to note these words are drawn directly from Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 6. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, when you stand up. I mean, ideas are all found there. And it's referring specifically to that teaching, which is God's teaching about how to live. That is the scriptures, his instruction. And so let me draw from this a simple conclusion, and that is that in the church, we must pay attention to the experiences of those who are spiritually ahead of us, ahead of us on our spiritual journey, because God uses them to uh, shape our lives. Now, how, what does that look like in a church? Well, I'd give some examples of things that we've done in order to try to encourage that. One is seeking to develop children's ministries and student ministries in such a way as those who are involved leading are seeking to mentor the children or the teenagers. That's not always easy to do, but we have done a number of things to try to establish that as the basic pattern of what we're doing. And Mary Kay has done a wonderful job, and Jennifer, who is now taking over from Mary Kay this year as we're transitioning, is continuing to do that. But one thing I've noticed through the years is people who visit at times and they take their children to children's ministry, they will tell me, many people have told me how you know, their children love it and it's good, and I experienced that myself. My children grew up here and, and, and all of that, but many people have told me this. I'm amazed and happy at how many men you have involved in children's ministry. And the fact is we have a number of men who have been involved in children's ministry for years, 20, 25 years, and they're just shepherds, mentors. It's not like they're the leaders of the whole thing. But many of our children have grown up seeing that. Now, why is that important? Well, obviously, any form of teaching children is going to have older people teaching younger. But it gives them a picture that there are a wide age range of people who really care about them, who really want to nurture them spiritually and move them forward. And I think that's one of the ways churches are meant to do exactly what I'm talking about. How is it that we pay attention to the experiences of those ahead of us? Well, we get them involved in ministries where they can mentor the younger children. Or things we've done before, I've been invited to go to Crossroads or Impact, our student ministries, and do an interview. My wife and I have been in these, it's been a while, but you know, we go and, and there's a few people there and the students get to ask anything they want of these leaders in the church or these fathers and mothers who are obviously older. And one of the things we want to do through that is to let the, the younger people know that, well, we were young once. That's a lot of times you don't realize. Anybody who's older than you was your age at one point, you know, and they've simply moved beyond that. We were young once, and we faced the same kind of things that you're facing. And uh, we want the younger people, particularly the students, to feel like they are part of the church now, not like they're developing to be part of the church once their wallet gets big enough, you know or something like that. Another way that we do it is um, by having non-age divided small groups. That's a way in which we try to pay attention to the experiences of people who are ahead. And sometimes I've sat in a group and just sat back and watched the interaction going on and I've thought, no one can tell how many problems are being solved. When uh, an older mother in the group, just kind of off the cuff because of the conversation shares, here's what happened with my teenage son and how I dealt with it, and it was right or wrong in this way. 
Nobody knows how many problems are being solved for the younger people who are sitting there listening to that. You can't measure that kind of impact, and yet, like a family, that's the impact that makes the greatest difference. Now, how could we, as a church, continue to do that? Well, there are a lot of different ways. If you're a group leader, you could, if you don't have many older people in your group, particularly if you're talking about parenting issues, invite some older couples from the church to come to your group one night and let the group talk with them about how they navigated their way through the teenage years with their children. Another way we could do that is by honoring older people and their milestones in life. For example, uh, anniversaries and birthdays and things, I realize people don't always like to make those public, but many children are growing up today not having parents who will make it to 50 years, or grandparents, or aunts and uncles, and it helps them to see the fact that we do have people like that. It would be good for us to do those things. I think that would be helpful. We have to, as a church, pay attention to those who are farther ahead of us on the spiritual journey, particularly, because God uses that to shape us and to guide us and protect us. Now, what I like to do is flip that around and say the other side as well. Those of us who are older, who are further ahead on our spiritual and life journey, must be willing to share what we've learned with those who are younger in order to assist them as they make decisions in life. Now, I obviously am in this category, whether I want to be or not. I am on the older side. I have children and grandchildren. And um, what I've noticed as a pastor is there's two times when people lose people, when churches lose people. The first time, most people know about it if they stop to think about it. The first time a church begins to lose people is when they graduate high school between that time and when they get married. They don't lose, we don't lose everyone, but all churches struggle with this no man's land of singleness and moving between childhood to adulthood. And what happens, and all churches are aware of this, when people get married, and particularly when they have children, there is a draw to come back to church. Because people begin to think, I, I want my children to experience what I, I experienced. And so they come back to church at that point. Now, I want to say there's notable exceptions to that. That doesn't happen to every person. We have a number of young people who have stayed with the church and stuck through all the way through all the experiences I just described. But that is something that all churches struggle with. It's partly cultural, the way we view adulthood, the when adulthood starts in our culture. And, and part of it, I suppose, is personal and developmental and all of that. But that's like when to lose people. But when they have children, they come back because they know family and church seem to fit together. You with me? The second time we lose people, I never counted on. But it's the end of that. When people's children grow up and they leave the home, their church attendance begins to drop off. Not for everyone. There are noticeable, notable exceptions to that. But it's another time period where people's church attendance becomes less regular. And it's, the reason is, as long as you tie church and family together, when your family's done, and for Laura and I, our four children live in the four corners of the U.S. almost, we, we don't see them very often. So there's no possibility that I will come here on a Sunday morning and be able to see my grandchildren and my children unless they happen to be visiting. And there's no connection for me any longer between church and family. As long as in your mind church and family are connected, then you won't have as much need for church 
when your family is done in the sense of being at your home and right around you. When your family grows up and they move away, there's this sense that, well, church doesn't have the same draw that it once had. Sometimes it becomes for people, I don't know how else to word it, but a lack of interest. Like they find interest in other things. At one time, they enjoyed bringing their children. Their children grew up here, let's say, and and they had other friends. And so there was a point where, as a father or mother, you felt like you had this contact. There was a web of relationships where your children were talking to other children, and those children were talking to you, and you, you knew other families. And there's a point where that web dries up. It's no longer there. And so you find other things to put your attention on. It can be a cottage. It can be grandchildren. It can be hobbies. But there's a a beginning of interest in other things. And so church becomes less important. Another one I, I think I just have to call loss of influence. Many times people, because of their children's involvement, involve themselves. So they become children's ministry workers, student ministry workers. And we've had a number of uh, people who have delightfully served in children's ministry throughout their uh, children growing up here, all the way through uh, mission trips for senior high students. I mean, they've done all the different things. And what happens is, after their children are gone and they have an empty nest, they will say, I once felt like I had a place at the church and I don't have it anymore because I, I was in children's ministry, but it's not, I don't want to be in children's ministry anymore. I don't have children at the church, or grandchildren, let's say. Well, there are a lot of things you can do about that, but what I'm saying is that older adults, you, you need to be careful. We need to be careful to avoid being drawn away from involvement in church activities because our children have grown up. And, and I want to say it strongly because there is no connection between being a follower of Christ and having children. When Christ called you to discipleship, he called you individually to follow him. Now, it may be easier to follow him at certain life stages in the context of a church, but that doesn't have anything to do with it. Discipleship has nothing to do with whether you're married or have children. It's a call on you individually. Worship is the duty of all human beings, according to Scripture, according to Psalms particularly. In all times, at all places, We are to worship God. It doesn't change, become diminished because our children aren't around or we don't have children. Or if you're a baptized Christian, listen, your baptism was the pledge of your obedience to God. Sometimes people miss that. The pledge of a good conscience towards God, 1 Peter chapter 3. Baptism is a pledge in which, like taking a wedding ring at your marriage, You say, I intend to follow Jesus Christ, and I want you to hold me responsible. And the fact is, your baptismal vow has nothing to do with having children or not having children. When your children grow up, it doesn't change the responsibility to follow Jesus. So if you're an older adult, I know that there are ways in which you can begin to not be as regular and not be involved in church things and find other things to do. Let me give you some suggestions on how you can... um, not feel like you've, you have no place any longer. One of you, or more, needs to start a small group for old people. I mean, older people. <laughs> what I mean is that when we were young, I was 29 when I started the church, and I've told this story before. I said to Harold Head, this older man, he's been with the Lord for 15 years now, 
you know, what, we don't have enough older people around here. We've got to watch the nursery all ourselves, all the young mothers. They're tired of it all week long. We need some older women who will just want to cuddle the babies and all that kind of thing. When are we going to get older people? And what did he say to me? Yeah, he said, give yourself a few years. You'll have all the old people you want. <laughs> well, I've lived long enough to experience what he was talking about. Now we have more older people, but what I noticed is that not only are there draws for older people away from the church, just like there are for those, you know, in that younger period of life before you're married and have children, there are draws for older people that pull us away from the church that we need to do things that keep us from doing that. And one of the things we could use is a small group for older people. Now you might say, that uh, doesn't that go against what you said? I didn't say we don't start groups based on mutual need. We do start groups for younger families. We just don't limit them to that. We allow people of any age to come to it. But I have noticed there are a lot of older people, and sometimes, and it's not all, but some of them go to Florida during the winter. Why doesn't someone start a group, who's in the older category, that runs from when people come back from Florida until they leave again? I mean, there's a long period there uh, that covers the whole summer, and I realize our group life in general runs through the winter and is free during the summer. That's the way we've structured things. But there's nothing sacred about that. If that doesn't meet the needs of everyone, let's start a group. So some of you older people need to see me afterwards, okay, <laughs> about starting this, because I help start small groups, I'll help you do it. I won't come to it, because I'm not old enough yet, but you know, <laughs> I want you to do it. And what I'm saying is there's all kinds of things you can do that, that will keep you from feeling like, there's no place for me here any longer because the younger people have taken my place doing those things that are related to families and children and all that kind of thing. But you know, the most important thing is you really must see yourself as a father or mother in the family of God, a, a grandparent. You, you have to see yourself that way. And what I mean is the whole idea of the family as church is the idea that we take on different roles based on our life stage, and that's the way we relate to people, and we're meant to do that. And oftentimes I find that those of us who are older, who tried to walk with God when we were young and have been through a lot of life experiences, we're not really willing to enter in and to be the kind of mentors that we need to be to those who are younger. So there's two sides to this. Not only does the church as a whole need to seek to draw in the wisdom of the older people, but those who are older need to focus their attention on being the kind of people who will be the grandparents in the family of God. You know, what I said to Harold really was true. We didn't have many mentors when we started this church. Everybody who came was my age or around my age within 10 years one way or the other. And we were a bunch of young families. And that's great. We did a lot of things. But the full breadth of the family of God is that we are meant to be an extended family where the different generations influence each other. Let's pray and ask God that he will make us that. Our gracious God, again, we thank you that you have given to us your word. Thank you that you describe us as being something that we deeply long for, and that is a family that extends beyond simply the confines of the family that you gave us and shaped us within and is important to us today. But you've given to us a broader family whose ties to one another are by something deeper and stronger and more lasting even than genetics and blood. 
is the Spirit of God. And we pray that you would help us to continue to be and to seek to be even more the kind of church family in which the different generations seek to influence each other and to love each other for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the extension of the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name.